Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black just returned from a sojourn in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, where the wife and I took a short vacay in anticipation of the summer months in Savannah. We thought we should look at the hill country to see if that could be a remedy for the sweat, the humidity, the misery that is summer in Savannah. We stayed at a little Airbnb up there in the mountains on Lake Toxaway. Very pretty country. Had one amazing meal at a place called, I don't, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, but Curate in Asheville, North Carolina, which was about an hour and a, and a finger from our house there in Lake Toxaway, Spanish meal, tapas, and just fabulous. If you're in Asheville, I highly recommend it. The house itself was adorable. The area surrounding was very pretty. The drive, unfortunately, was too long. It's just, it's just a long drive, you know, five and a half hours to get there. Now, if you're going to be there for a month or something, I say, well, that's not so bad. But for three days, such as it was with us, it felt quite distant, particularly with two complaining dogs in the back of the car, drugged though they may have been. And before I hear any criticism about drugging the dogs, keep in mind, I would have preferred to drug myself, but that was not plausible with the drive that we had ahead of us. And so the next best option was to sedate the animals. What did we do while we were there? Not very much of anything. I mean, we explored the mountain towns. Uh, We drove around a bit. We did a little hiking. We went to a state park. We went to Cashers, North Carolina, where my mother used to vacation when she was living down in South Florida. She and her partner, Sandy, would make the trek up to North Carolina for the summer where they rented a cabin every year. So I had been there before, I guess. I, I had visited my mother down there in Cashers before, but hadn't returned in many years. And it was, yeah, I was seeing it, I feel like, with fresh eyes. We talked about going to the Biltmore Estate, you know, the largest private residence ever constructed in these here United States. And uh, that's, that's outside of Asheville. And you can take tours of the thing. But prices for the Biltmore Estate audio self-guided tours started at $66, and though we could have shelled out that money, it seemed 
quite expensive to me. That seemed like more than I was willing to pay to look at a bunch of rooms, you know? Ultimately, what are we looking at? Just a bunch of rooms all lined up one after the other, probably filled with all kinds of stuff. And uh, why do I need to make, who was it? The Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts? I don't know who built, built more. One of those families. I didn't need to give them any more money. I don't know if they still own it or not. I don't know who owns it. Doesn't really matter to me. It just seemed like too much. You can spend $250 on a tour there. I'm saying the prices started. I'm saying the prices started at $66 and went up to $250. Well, that just seemed like too much money to me. You know, these, these rich families, these families of means, they just want more and more from you, don't they? Tough to be a family of means in some ways. I don't know how, but I imagine it is. The Earnshaws, for example, are family there in Wuthering Heights. I mean, they've got a nice estate. They've got some serving, serving people. They've got some land. But we can see that they're not very happy. You know, the Earnshaws, ever since Master Earnshaw brought home that Waif Heathcliff to the house, everything's gone to hell. You know, he was trying to do a good deed. And, well, we know what happens with good deeds. And we know what road they lead you down. And at the conclusion of our last episode, Master Earnshaw had just expired there in Wuthering Heights. Uh, the children are in shock. Mrs. Dean, our narrator for the moment, was quite upset. Joseph was scolding as he does the sanctimonious prick that he is, just telling everybody, oh, pipe down, you know, he's in heaven, now be happy about it, why don't you? Well, because it's hard to be happy when somebody you love died, you know? That's just a fact of, of human nature. Rarely does somebody die and you go, huzzah! You know, unless it's somebody who did some bad deeds on earth, but Earnshaw wasn't that. So that's where we concluded last episode with the children comforting each other in their room at midnight. That was the end of chapter five. Now let us begin chapter six, Wuthering Heights. Mr. Hindley came home to the funeral and a thing that amazed us and set the neighbors gossiping right and left. He brought a wife with him. What she was and where she was born he never informed us. Probably she had neither money nor name to recommend her, or he would scarcely have kept the union from his father. She was not... I didn't realize Hindley was old enough to marry at this point, but I guess he is. Remember, he, he got sent away to school, you know, to some fancy private school. I guess it was some sort of college. And uh, now he's got a wife, all right? So he wasn't there when his father died. She was not one that would have disturbed the house much on her own account. Every object she saw, the moment she crossed the threshold, appeared to delight her, and every circumstance that took place about her, except the preparing for the burial in the presence of the mourners. I thought she was half silly from her behavior while that went on. She ran into her chamber and made me come with her, though I should have been dressing the children— and there she sat shivering and clasping her hands and asking repeatedly, Are they gone yet? Now, so I don't understand. I'm confused, as we all tend to be when reading Wuthering Heights about who's who. So Hindley Earnshaw is the eldest son, right? He got sent off. But 
Now, Mrs. Dean is saying she should have been dressing the children. What children? Because Catherine and Heathcliff are close in age to Hindley. So why, what children is she talking about? I don't quite know. Then she began describing with hysterical emotion the effect it produced on her to see black and started and trembled and at last fell a-weeping. And when I asked what was the matter, answered, she didn't know, but she felt so afraid of dying. Well, probably because she's going to die. Let's hope. I already don't like this little minx. Let's hope she dies. I mean, is that a harsh judgment when you've just met somebody to say out loud, I hope that they die? Whether it's harsh or not, the fact of the matter is they are going to die. So your hope will be fulfilled. It's just a question of how soon. I imagined her as little likely to die as myself. She was rather thin, but young and fresh-complexioned. Oh, well, I guess uh, rather thin in this case was not a compliment because, of course, this was a time when thinness did not necessarily equate with uh, health. In fact, quite the opposite. She was rather thin, but young and fresh-complexioned, and her eyes sparkled as bright as diamonds. I did remark, to be sure, that mounting the stairs made her breathe very quick, that the least sudden noise set her all in a quiver, and that she coughed troublesomely sometimes. But I knew nothing of what these symptoms portended, and had no impulse to sympathize with her. We don't in general take to foreigners here, Mr. Lockwood, unless they take to us first. Young Earnshaw was altered considerably in the three years of his absence. Oh, so he's three years he's been gone. Okay, fine. He had grown sparer and lost his color and spoke and dressed quite differently. And on the very day of his return, he told Joseph and me we must thenceforth quarter ourselves in the back kitchen and leave the house for him. Indeed, he would have carpeted and papered a small spare room for a parlor, but his wife expressed such pleasure at the white floor and huge glowing fireplace, at the pewter dishes and delf case and dog kennel and the wide space there was to move about in where they usually sat, that he thought it unnecessary to her comfort and so dropped the intention. Well, I mean, this is like a little bit of HGTV, you know, she likes the open floor concept. And I can't say I disagree. The white floors sound terrific. The little pewter dishes out, the Delft case. I'm not sure about putting the dog kennel in the house, but okay. But there's wide space to move around. You know, who knew all those years ago that they would like loft living? You know, hard to square that with, uh, with my thoughts or with my impressions of what these folks were like here in America. She expressed pleasure too at finding a sister among her new acquaintance, and she prattled to Catherine and kissed her and ran about with her and gave her quantities of presents at the beginning. Her affection tired very soon, however, and when she grew peevish, Hindley became tyrannical. (laughs) A few words from her, evincing a dislike to Heathcliff, were enough to rouse in him all his old hatred of the boy. He drove him from their company to the servants, deprived him of the instruction of the curate, and insisted that he should do labor out of doors instead, compelling him to do so as hard as any other lad on the farm. So wait, well, I don't really, 
Okay, hold on. Why? First of all, what's her name? Did they even they didn't even say her name yet? Mrs. Uh, just his wife, right? But apparently, she doesn't have a name. Uh, no name to speak of at this point. So, but why doesn't she like Heathcliff? There's there's no word. You know, I think Heathcliff in general. People meet Heathcliff. And they say to themselves, oh, geez, what a dick. You know, because he's one of those dark brooding guys. And everybody thinks, you know, you meet one of these dark brooding guys and everybody thinks, oh, he's such an asshole. He hates me. You know, he hates everybody. But that's not what it is, I think, a lot of the time. A lot of the time, you know that you know who they hate most of all themselves. They look in the mirror and they, and they think, oh, this, this, this asshole again. But they're not, you know, they're not necessarily like judging everybody that's that's walking around them and going, ah, oh, fuck her and fuck him and fuck the whole lot of, like, they're nobody's, you know, I don't think anybody's doing, people think that everybody's thinking about them when they're not, they're thinking about themselves. We all know this, this is just a fact of human nature. And because you're thinking primarily about yourself when you look at somebody else, because you're solip, solip, solipistic, solipistic, and I got to look up solipism, solipism, is that how you pronounce it? I got to crank up the old research machine and here we go. Typing it in and solipsism. I'm just uh, so solipsism. Sol solipsism. What does that mean? It means like you only you can't you, something about it's just you, right? Something something like that. The viewer theory that the self is all that can be known to exist, and it's it's pronounced solipsism. So you know everybody's solipsistic to a certain degree. And this young wife, probably insecure at her place at the house, she looks at Heathcliff, he's looking at her, he's probably not thinking about her at all. Oh, you know, he's thinking about, he's thinking about what a wretch he is, you know, and she thinks, oh, he's just being a dick. Well, maybe he is, maybe he's not. But I don't understand how Hindley can make him work out on the farm. Like who, like who, like Hindley, Hindley's just like, you got to go work out on the farm and he does? Doesn't seem right. He bore his degradation pretty well at first. Because Kathy taught him what she learned and worked or played with him in the fields. So, I mean, I, maybe I'm not understanding the age difference. I thought they were close in age, but maybe there's a greater span than I had thought. Maybe there's like four or five years, in which case Hindley would be like 18, 19, Heathcliff might be 13, 14, and then I guess maybe there could be, you could compel. I guess, maybe? I don't know. They both promised Fair to grow up as rude as savages, the young master being entirely negligent how they behaved and what they did, so they kept clear of him. He would not even have seen after their going to church on Sundays, only Joseph and the curate reprimanded his carelessness when they absented themselves, and that reminded him to order Heathcliff a flogging. <laughs> And, and Catherine a fast from dinner or supper. Well, let's take a little break. My dog, my dog needs to be sedated again. Honestly, he's just barking, just barking. You probably can't hear it. I'm, I'm a little bit distant from him. But oh, what I would give for a good tranquilizer shot right into his eyeball. At this point, he annoys the hell out of me. I'm going to go yell at him to shut up. Back in a moment on obscure.
back. The dog has quieted for the moment, but uh, chances are he will erupt presently. And I can only hope that you are spared his guttural yawping. He just did it. He literally just did it. As soon as I said yawping, woof. All right. So Catherine, Heathcliff, scheming, skipping church, getting flogged. But it was one of their chief amusements to run away to the moors in the morning and remain there all day. And the after punishment grew a mere thing to laugh at. The curate might set as many chapters as he pleased for Catherine to get by heart. And Joseph might thrash Heathcliff till his arm ached. They forgot everything the minute they were together again. At least the minute they had contrived some naughty plan of revenge. And many a time I've cried to myself to watch them growing more reckless daily, and I not daring to speak a syllable, for fear of losing the small power I still retained over the unfriended creatures. One Sunday evening, it chanced that they were banished from the sitting-room for making a noise or a light offense of the kind, and when I went to call them to supper, I could discover them nowhere. Well, well, we have a little mystery. The children have disappeared. We searched the house above and below, and the yard and stables. They were invisible. And at last, Hindley in a passion told us to bolt the doors and swore nobody should let them in that night. The household went to bed, and I, too anxious to lie down, opened my lattice and put my head out to hearken, though it rained, determined to admit them in spite of the prohibition should they return. In a while, I distinguished steps coming up the road, and the light of a lantern glimmered through the gate. I threw a shawl over my head and ran to prevent them from waking Mr. Earnshaw by knocking. There was Heathcliff, by himself. It gave me a start to see him alone. Where is Miss Catherine? I cried hurriedly. No accident, I hope. At Thrushcross Grange, he answered. And I would have been there too, but they had not the manners to ask me to stay. Well, you will catch it, I said. You'll never be content till you're sent about your business. What in the world led you wandering to Thrushcross Grange? That picturesque American town. Let me get off my wet clothes and I'll tell you all about it, Nelly, he replied. I bid him beware of rousing the master. And while he undressed, I waited to put out the candle. He continued. Kathy and I escaped from the wash house to have a ramble at liberty, and getting a glimpse of the Grange lights, we thought we would just go and see whether the Lintons passed their Sunday evening standing shivering in corners while their father and mother sat eating and drinking and singing and laughing and burning their eyes out before the fire. Do you think they do? Or reading sermons and being catechized by their catechized cate catechism? So, yeah. Oh, okay. So, oh, I see. I see what he's... I, I'm, I was not quite understanding, but now I think I understand the tone of this. So he's saying, this is what we have to do. So let's go see if the Linton children have to do the same. Kathy and I escaped from the wash house to have a ramble at Liberty. And getting a glimpse of the Grange lights, we thought we would just go and see whether the Lintons passed their Sunday evenings standing shivering in corners while their father and mother sat eating and drinking and singing and laughing and burning their eyes out before the fire. Do you think they do? Or reading sermons and being catechized by their manservant and set to learn a column of scripture names if they don't answer properly? 
Probably not, I responded. They are good children, no doubt, and don't deserve the treatment you receive for your bad conduct. Don't you can't, Nellie, he said. Don't you can't? Nonsense. Don't you can't, he said. Don't you can't, Nellie? What? Ugh. Don't you can't, Nellie? Don't you can't, Nellie, he said. Nonsense. We ran from the top of the heights to the park without stopping. Catherine completely beaten in the race because she was barefoot. You'll have to seek for her shoes in the bog tomorrow. <laughs> this is Dean. Go down to the bog and look for Catherine's shoes, why don't you? I mean, that's not the... You know, I don't care who is in your employ. You don't make anybody go down to the bog to look for shoes. You go if you want to find the shoes and you... You find him yourself. You don't ask somebody else to dredge the bog for you. We crept through a broken hedge, groped our way up the path, and planted ourselves on a flower pot under the drawing room window. The light came from thence. They had not put up the shutters, and the curtains were only half closed. Both of us were able to look in by standing on the basement and clinging to the ledge, and we saw, ah, it was beautiful. A splendid place carpeted with crimson, and crimson-covered chairs and tables, and a pure white ceiling bordered by gold. A shower of glass drops hanging in silver chains from the center, and shimmering with little soft tapers. Old Mr. and Mrs. Linton were not there. Edgar and his sister had it entirely to themselves. Shouldn't they have been happy? We should have thought ourselves in heaven. And now, guess what your good children were doing? Isabella, I believe she is 11, a year younger than Kathy. Okay, so Kathy's 12, fine. Isabella, I believe she is 11, a year younger than Kathy, lay screaming at the farther end of the room, shrieking as if witches were running red-hot needles into her. Edgar stood on the hearth, weeping silently. And in the middle of the table sat a little dog, shaking its paw and yelping, which from their mutual accusations we understood they had nearly pulled in two between them. The idiots, that was their pleasure, to quarrel who should hold a heap of warm hair, and each began to cry because both, after struggling to get it, refused to take it. We laughed outright at the petted things, we did despise them. When would you catch me wishing to have what Catherine wanted, or find us by ourselves seeking entertainment and yelling and sobbing and rolling on the ground, divided by the whole room? I'd not exchange for a thousand lives my condition here for Edgar Linton's at Thrushcross Grange, not if I might have the privilege of flinging Joseph off the highest gable and painting the house front with Hindley's blood. So, the Linton, he went to go see the Lintons, you know, spy on the Linton family. And, you know, he goes up to the house and God, it's gorgeous in there. Oh, look at all these lifestyles of the rich and famous with the, uh, not the Hinton, the Linton family. You know, they, they got nice stuff and the ceiling's white and trimmed with gold and a warm fire glowing and they've got the place to themselves, just the kids, you know, and it's Sunday night and it should be just a time for eating mutton and and uh, and and drinking chocolate milk and having themselves a grand old time. But what does he find? The Linton children separated at the length of the room, each one more miserable than the next because they both wanted to pet the same damn dog. 
This is the problem with people of means. They can never be satisfied. There's also Alexander Hamilton's problem, if you recall, from the musical. But these people, they have everything, and what do they want? Yet more. Now, perhaps we are all guilty of this greed. The greed, I suspect, infects us on the, on the genetic level. It is a kind of acidic malevolence that eats away at ourselves if we are not able to tame it. And what is the history of human spiritual seeking, if not the history of attempting to tame want? But these are just children, of course. They see a dog. They almost break the thing in half, each one trying to pet it. And uh, everybody ends up miserable, including the dog who's holding his paw and yelping. So Heathcliff sees that and says, well, I wouldn't change, change places with them for all the tea in China. Even if I got to throw Joseph off the highest gable, I would, he's not saying he wouldn't want to live like them. He's saying he wouldn't want to be them. He wouldn't want to have that kind of misery in his life. He's, you know, he's kind of a Huckleberry Finn, isn't he? Just in better clothes. He's a rebel. He's a free spirit. He doesn't mind getting the occasional whooping. He's, you know, and he wouldn't give he wouldn't give that up. He wouldn't give up the essence of who he is. And yet, when we meet him, he seems to have given it up. So, he said, "I would I wouldn't change I wouldn't change places even if you let me paint the house front with Hindley's blood." Hush, hush! I interrupted. Still, you have not told me, Heathcliff, how Catherine is left behind. I told you we laughed, he answered. The Lintons heard us, and with one accord they shot like arrows to the door. There was silence, and then a cry. Oh, Mama, Mama, oh, Papa, oh, Mama, come here, oh, Papa, oh. They really did howl out something in that way. We made frightful noises to terrify them still more, and then we dropped off the ledge because somebody was drawing the bars, and we felt we had better flee. I had Kathy by the hand and was urging her on when all at once she fell down. Run, Heathcliff, run, she whispered. They've let the bulldog loose and he holds me. So, wait. <laughs> I mean, she's very noble. The bulldog is uh, is biting her on the ankle and she's saying, save yourself, Heathcliff. Let me, let me be eaten by the bulldog. The devil had seized her ankle, Nelly. I heard his abominable snorting. She did not yell out. No, she would have scorned to do it. If he'd been spitted on the horns of a mad cow. I did, though. I vociferated curses enough to annihilate any fiend in Christendom. And I got a stone and thrust it between his jaws and tried with all my might to cram it down his throat. A beast of a servant came up with a lantern at last, shouting, Keep fast, Skulker, keep fast! He changed his note, however, when he saw Skulker's game. The dog was throttled off, his huge purple... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading in her voice, and I should be reading in his. I mean, it's very complicated, all the different narrators. He changed his note, however, when he saw Skulker's game. The dog was throttled off, his huge purple tongue hanging half a foot out of his mouth, and his pendant lips streaming with bloody slaver. The man took Kathy up. She was sick, not from fear, I'm certain, but from pain. He carried her in. I followed, grumbling execrations and vengeance. 
"'What pray, Robert?' hallooed Linton from the entrance. "'Skulker has caught a little girl, sir,' he replied. "'And there's a lad here,' he added, "'making a clutch at me, who looks an out and outer. "'Very like the robbers were for putting them through the window "'to open the doors to the gang after all were asleep, "'that they might murder us at their ease. "'Hold your tongue, you foul-mouthed thief, you. "'You shall go to the gallows for this. "'Mr. Linton, sir, don't lay by your gun.' No, no, Robert. Do you hear these dogs? I don't know if you can hear them. But they will not stop. They were terrible in Connecticut when we lived there, and they've grown far worse in Savannah. Far worse. Because it's an urban environment, they see many more things to bark at. And it's atrocious. Hate them. I hate them. I mean, look. Nobody ever says they hate their dogs. When they do this, I hate them. <sighs> All right, my mood is spoiled. And, but let's, well, my, look, we're at the end of to- our time together anyway. Might as well wrap it up here. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Heathcliff is now being threatened with the gallows for showing up there and, you know, with the gal who's been mauled by the dog. And, uh, you know, it's, it's trouble. There's trouble there in River City or Thrushcross Grange City. The servant is saying, you know, look at this kid. He's an out-and-outer. Look at him. The dark skin, the dark hair, the dark flashing eyes, the sullen mean. Clearly, he was buttering our house up for robbers to come and murder us in our sleep. And Mr. Linton will respond to that charge uh, next episode, when we return, hopefully my dogs will have found another home by then. That is my fondest desire. And hopefully I will have found some sort of home to escape to in the summer. I mean, it's months away. Who am I kidding? And I'm broke. What am I going to do? Buy a house? No. No. But maybe I can Airbnb something. Who knows? We'll see. I don't know. But, you know, when you live down here, as I have for the past, oh, several months, the, the thought of summer is just always in the back of my mind going, well, what the hell am I going to do this summer when I'm miserable again? Don't know. I don't know. But uh, hopefully it will involve cooler temperatures, not, not just in terms of the, uh, the weather, but also in terms of my mood. Yes, I am. My mood is bestirred and befouled now because of these dogs barking, barking, barking. And so let us conclude there. We will return, of course, again on another veterinary assisted euthanasia uh, episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. And I will see you next time.